Welcome to another edition of the Cool Stuff Ride Home Podcast. Marcus Paff and Reggie Rizzo coming at you on today's episode, the Metropolitan Museum of Art to repatriate dozens of stolen pieces of art. Boy, that's a big word. A remote island is now accepting applications for an eight-month caretaker position. Get your resumes ready. And they want two individuals, plus a very old video game that may have been beat for the first time. That plus this week in history, a pivotal moment for the revolver coming up on cool stuff ride home the metropolitan museum of art in new york announced on friday its decision to repatriate over a dozen pieces of ancient artwork to cambodia and thailand the artworks were connected to an art dealer and collector douglas latchford accused of running an extensive antiquities trafficking network in southeast asia the museum disclosed that 14 kumar sculptures would be returned to cambodia and two would be sent back to thailand U.S. and European museums have been addressing collections containing items looted during centuries of colonialism or periods of turmoil and working on returning them to their homeland. The process of returning the artwork stemmed from an indictment against Douglas Latchford in 2019. He was accused of orchestrating a multi-year scheme to sell looted Cambodia antiquities on the international art market. Despite his denial of any involvement in smuggling, the museum collaborated with the U.S. Attorney's Office and Homeland Security Investigations, initially returning 13 sculptures linked to him. So far, three more pieces were identified to have been smuggled by Latchford. Aaron Keegan, HSI acting special agent in charge, noted that pieces linked to the investigation of Douglas Latchford continue to reveal themselves. She added, the Metropolitan Museum of Art has not only recognized the significance of these 13 Kumar artifacts, which were shamelessly stolen, but has also volunteered to return them as part of their ongoing cooperation to the rightful owners, the people of Cambodia, end quote. This isn't the first instance of the museum repatriating art tied to Latchford. In 2013, two objects were returned to Cambodia. The Latchford family has also returned centuries-old Cambodia jewelry, including 77 pieces in February consisting of gold crowns, necklaces, and earrings, with additional stone and bronze artifacts returned in September of 21. The recent repatriated works from the Metropolitan Museum of Art date back to the 9th through 14th centuries. The museum did not provide a specific timeline for the return of these pieces. They have been actively researching the ownership history of its objects, including an examination of the provenance of Nazi-looted artwork that changed hands in Germany-occupied Europe. Additionally, the museum's research focuses on ancient art and cultural property, investigating how these objects were discovered and transferred. So a good deed going on here. I mean, obviously, it's always hard to give up artwork, but when you know it was stolen, I think it's always good just to give it back. Yeah, absolutely, Reggie. I think this is the right move, returning the items to their rightful owners. And presumably, if you're willing to visit Cambodia in this instance, you can see the items on display at one of their museums. And obviously, you know, none of this may not have come about if they didn't actually uh, find out that Douglas Latchford did smuggle all of this stuff. So, I mean, the investigation into him obviously led to this uh, good deed finally coming about. Well, if you're in need of a job and you're willing to relocate, listen up. The owners of an off-grid Welsh island are looking for two wardens to live and work there. But there's a bit of a catch. The island known as Bardsey, located approximately two miles off the coast of Hind Peninsula in North Wales, at least that's how I've been led to believe it's pronounced, spelled L-L-Y-N, has limited electricity provided by solar panels, which can apparently run a light, 
refrigerator, and internet router. What about a computer? You got the internet router, <laughs> but what about the computer? I think that's necessary too, right? Yeah, that might be a necessary component to all of this. You can get the web, but not without a computer. Per Sky News setting the advertisement, the accommodation wardens on Bardsley Island will enjoy benefits, benefits in air quotes, including one boat trip to the mainland per month, a shared food growing space, and an internet connection. The island measures 0.69 square miles and has a population of 11. It's also claimed to be the burial site of the mythical wizard Merlin. The Bardsey Island Trust, which purchased the island in 1979, is looking for joint applications from two individuals. So find a buddy, or your spouse, who are expected to live and work together. Successful applicants will be paid approximately $14.50 per hour with their contract lasting from March 1st through October 30th. Here's a fun detail. The job description says there is no indoor running hot water and a composting toilet is located outside. The job description also says the ability to speak both English and Welsh is mandatory, so I guess I'm eliminated from contention here. With a driver's license also desirable. Reggie, here's here's something I'm I'm curious to know. Well, first, what do you need a driver's license for on a on an island that measures 0.69 square miles and has no roads to my knowledge? Once you get off the boat onto the mainland, you have to drive to get your supplies, I I guess. I don't know. (laughs) I suppose that's true, but presumably you're supposed to be growing a lot of your food on the uh, shared garden site. All I know is they lost me with no hot water. I'm out right there. The outside toilet, I can maybe do seeing how it's March through October. Weather shouldn't be too bad. Sure. But the no hot water, they lost me. And you know what? I think one thing we learned from COVID is that many months alone with your spouse not going anywhere, it's going to lead to divorce. (laughs) Well, fun fact here in 2022, the island became the first location in Europe to be given the dark sky sanctuary status, meaning the island has very limited lighting at night with the nearest major light pollution source over 70 miles away in Dublin. Bardsey Island joins only 16 other sites globally with that designation. I'll be honest, Reg, there's a part of me that thinks this would be kind of a fun adventure. I mean, you make minimum wage doing this, but in reality, everything else is taken care of, I suppose. (laughs) Although, as I say that, everything else constitutes what? Having an outdoor toilet, no running water, at least no hot running water, and a shared space to grow your food because you're not driving down the street to go to Chipotle. I would spend every day looking for Marlin. Looking for his his burial site. That's that's every day what I would be doing. So you're telling me on October 30th, they would find you there with all sorts of holes in the ground and (laughs) you looking like a disheveled lunatic saying, I'm trying to You know what? I would just tell them, if they would complain, like, you can have your money back. It's fine. I'll just leave. (laughs) You can keep the 50 bucks. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, maybe it's the right job for a couple of people out there if you're looking for some adventurous living for a couple of months. A 13-year-old boy from Oklahoma has apparently become the first person to ever beat Tetris, reaching level 157 before the game crashed. Willie Gibson posted a video of the feat on YouTube, which shows that very moment. The stunned 13-year-old gasped, quote, Oh my God, I'm going to pass out. I can't feel my fingers. I can't feel my hands. I'm going to pass out. Willie adds as he tries to catch his breath, quote, I'm shaking so bad, end quote. Uh, I suppose, Reg, as a 13-year-old, I might get a little bit 
over anxious or over excited about beating a game that literally no human has ever taken down before. And quite frankly, before I saw this story, didn't even realize it could be beaten. That was my thought. I didn't know you could beat it. I just thought it kept getting faster and more difficult. I didn't think there was ever an ending except for, you know, you losing. I thought for sure this was a game that you can only technically lose at. Yeah, this it, it felt like one of those where really you're just in competition with your buddy and, and seeing who can get the high score or who can get the furthest, never actually reaching a definitive end. Per Sky News, it took the teenager who goes by the name Blue Scuddy on YouTube just 38 minutes to cause the game to crash, which has never been done by a human, as I mentioned. Of course, Tetris is a classic video game which sees players maneuver and arrange falling blocks into complete lines, which disappear when properly placed. It was created by Soviet engineer Alexei Pajitnov in 1984. Hopefully I'm doing that name some justice. And as a player progresses, the speed of the falling blocks increases. That's another thing I had no idea about, Reggie, that this game was actually created by a Soviet engineer in 84. I did know that one. I, I knew it was a Russian uh, design game. I believe the first one actually showed like the Kremlin or some of the famous Russian buildings in the background. Really? Wow. Fascinating. I'm going to have to look this up on YouTube now and see what I can find. This is fascinating as well. It was long believed that level 29, which introduces the fastest speed in the game, was the furthest level possible. But as another YouTuber who goes by the name A Game Scout explains in an analysis of Willie's achievement, someone finally hit level 30 in 2011. Other human players have since managed to get even further, but until now, only AI computers have reached Tetris's true ending, which of course is a computer crash. Willie wrote in his YouTube video description, quote, when I started playing this game, I never expected to ever crash the game or beat it. This run was also the overall score level lines and 19 score world record, end quote. Kind of cool if you're a 13 year old kid. Uh, I Honestly, I'm a little surprised that a 13 year old in 2023 or now 2024 is interested in playing Tetris. Oh, there's still some uh, interest in retro games and I still don't understand how crashing it is technically winning. It seems like you just broke the game. Yeah, I, I guess so. But in the absence of any sort of true end boss, I guess that's what it comes yeah. down to. I, I, usually, if I pass a game, there's credits and stuff like that. <laughs> it usually doesn't just crash on me. <laughs> well, don't take away from Willie's achievement here, Red. Well, I'm feeling good. I don't know if I've gotten anywhere <laughs> close to that level. So I'm not taking away his achievement. That's, that's you know, as much as people criticize games at times, that is a lot of hand-eye coordination there. Were you a Tetris fan growing up? I did enjoy Tetris, yes. Okay, all right. I bring this up because, and I know this is somewhat unrelated, but if you've ever seen the documentary For a Fistful of Quarters or A Fistful of Quarters on Netflix, check it out. It's about Donkey Kong and the world record that was set in that game. And I, I first found it about 10 years ago, and it is, it is highly entertaining. I actually played, there's multiple versions of Tetris. I played different ones where sometimes you move. It's kind of like Candy Crush, like an early version of Candy Crush hmm. before that ever existed. Uh, I played, I can't remember what its name was now, but I played that one a lot. I usually played that one at the end of summer when my uh, brain was kind of mush. And when it was time to go back to school, I thought, you know what? I need to get something to get my brain working again. Tetris will do it because I have to, you know, try to think quick. Sure, sure. A lot of logic behind Tetris and stacking blocks quickly. Yeah, I, I can see the logic there. And I wasn't going to read at that age. I read now, but I wasn't going to read then. <laughs> <laughs> all video games all the time. Taking a look at this day in history, on January 4th, 1847, Samuel Colt 
secured a significant contract with the U.S. government, supplying them with 1,000 of his revolutionary 44 caliber revolvers, marking a pivotal moment in history. Even though he acquired a patent for the revolving gun on February 25, 1836, before he received the contract with the government, handguns weren't used as much due to their high cost and inaccuracy. Short-barreled pistols were impractical for most Americans, and dueling pistols were reserved for formalized combat among the elite. The preferred choices for self-defense and close-quarters combat were knives, with the Bowie knife being the one most favored by Western pioneers. Colt's innovation featured a mechanism merging a single rifle barrel with a revolving chamber holding five or six shots. When the weapon was cocked, the chamber automatically revolved, aligning the next shot with the barrel. Although less accurate than hunting rifles, Colt's revolver allowed reasonable precision at short distances. Thanks to its rifled interior, the spiraled grooves provided gyroscopic stability to the exiting slug. In fact, an expert shooter could be accurate from around 30 to 40 yards away. The revolver's five or six shot capacity made accuracy less crucial though, as missed shots could swiftly be followed by others. The federal government played a pivotal role by purchasing Colt's revolvers in large quantities, providing a de facto subsidy and capital for production improvements. Collaborating with inventors like Eli Whitney, Colt implemented mass production and interchangeable parts, significantly reducing cost. By the early 1850s, Colt revolvers, while not cheap, became affordable. This shift allowed them to gain popularity during the California gold rush as Americans headed westward. Between 1850 and 1860, Colt sold 170,000 pocket revolvers and 98,000 belt revolvers, primarily to civilians seeking a potent and effective means of self-defense in the evolving landscape of the Wild West. As a side note, Colt never claimed to invent revolvers. His design was just considered a more practical version of Elijah Collier's revolving flintlock, which was developed around 1814. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, I did not know the uh, the history and certainly to know that name. Obviously, I think most of us have come to to know what a Colt 45 is over the years, uh, even though I, I myself have never held or actually seen one in person. But yeah, Samuel Colt. I didn't realize that he worked with Eli Whitney to, you know, increase mass production and of the guns in general. I mean, I found that interesting. And, you know, part of the reason I picked the story is I don't really uh, shoot guns very often, but I know my dad's a fan. So uh, this one's, I guess, in kind of honor of my dad. I look back in history for my dad. Thanks for joining us on this edition of Cool Stuff Ride Home. You can reach us at coolstuffcommute at gmail.com. We'll uh, take your emails, good or bad. Feel free to tell us your thoughts. I'm Reggie Rizzo, joined by Marcus Path. We'll talk to you tomorrow on another edition of Cool Stuff Ride Home.